Spring dropped our kids off in Gen Kids. We have two girls. We have a, a nine-year-old Grace and eight-year-old Audrey. Audrey just turned eight this week. And, and as of this week, my nine-year-old daughter Grace has saved $58. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you probably, but it, but it scares me to death uh, because um, Grace is the kind of person who's never been able to save money. Uh, she's the kind of girl that if she has $2 in her hand, she will immediately find something that she absolutely has to have that costs exactly $2. And so money doesn't stick around long with her. Um, but on the last probably two or three months, she has been on a mission. Grace is saving for a dog. And that's what scares me. <laughs> now, we already have a dog. Okay, we have a great dog. We have a golden doodle. Uh, men, don't be haters. Uh, I know golden doodle doesn't sound like the most manly breed in the world, but she's a great dog. She's a manly dog. I mean, she'll run with me. She'll wrestle with me. And uh, granted that if I run into another man in the park, I'll sometimes say she's a golden retriever mix because that sounds a little better than golden doodle. It doesn't quite sound so manly, but she's a great dog. And, and that's saying a lot because I've never been a dog person. Uh, growing up, I had a cat and I had a hermit crab. And, and neither of those really qualify as pets, I don't think. Uh, I, I, hermit crab is more like furniture than an animal. And, and cats are, are cats. Uh, that I, I don't even know that God created them, actually. So, um. <laughs> But we have this great dog. But, but the problem is this, that Grace is nine. And she can't walk this dog by herself. The dog is about 70 pounds. And she can't walk it by herself. And she can't, she can't pick it up and carry it around. And so she wants a little dog. And specifically, she wants a chihuahua. Yeah, that's what I said too. So she, um, you know, she wants this chihuahua and I'm not a big fan of little dogs, little dogs that go yip, yip, yip. And if you have a little dog, I'm sure yours is awesome, but, but they're really not for me. And so um, uh, the dog Grace wanted, she found cost $400. And so um, I, I'm, I'm a dad that likes to instill positive habits in, in my kids. And I, I, like, I think you probably are too. You want your kids to grow up with positive habits. And so I told Grace... If you save up the money, you can get that dog. And I never thought it would happen. And it still may not. I mean, $58 is a long way from 400 right? But $58 is a lot further than I ever thought she'd get. And so now I find myself trying to undo the good habits that I've already instilled. Like, uh, hey, you know that American Girl doll you wanted? You've almost got enough money to buy that. You could go buy that. Or, or you know, she'll see a toy in the window. And I'm like, hey, you've got enough money. You could go buy that if you want to. But, but she has not been swayed. Uh, Grace is truly a girl on a mission. And uh, we're in this series at Genesis we're calling Go, and it's based on Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And they're recorded in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And at Genesis Church, our mission is helping people find their way back to God. And that's really just a fancy way, just kind of a fun way of saying go and make disciples, help people find their way back to God. Jesus, in his last words on earth, was sending us on a mission. Now, when I think about what it means to be on a mission for Jesus, I think about a particular story from the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn, to me with, uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to know that we have one for you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we've got them available at the Info Hub just outside these doors. We want you to pick one up for free. It's a, our gift to you. You can go get it now or you can go get it after the service. But it's important that, that you read along with us because if not, we could just put... We could just make stuff up and put it up on the screens. And so we want you to know that what we're talking about in here comes from Scripture. So if you have your Bible, Mark chapter 2, we're going to start right in verse verse 1. It says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room. 
even outside the door, while men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. I'm sorry, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on the mat right down in front of Jesus. Now, this is a picture of men on a mission, isn't it? I mean, this man, this friend of theirs, was paralyzed. He couldn't move. He couldn't walk. He was in need of healing. Do you know somebody in need of healing? Do you have a coworker that, um, even though they work right next to you, and maybe they make more money than you do, but they're struggling in their marriage? Do you have a neighbor that's lonely all by herself? Do you have a friend that's struggling with depression or addictions or some other issue that they've desperately tried to solve for themselves? Well, if you're here today and you know Jesus, there's a pretty good chance that you know that Jesus is the solution to their problems. And so here's the question for you. What would you do to get your friend in front of Jesus? I mean, these men put their friend on a mat, carried him through the town, and when they got to the house, they saw that there were so many people there uh, that they were mashed up against the walls, that there was a line out the door. And most reasonable people would have concluded that there was no way in, that, that we might as well go home, that, that hope was lost. But not these guys. They decided to climb up the side of the house and go through the roof. And so when we see their zeal and we see their their intentionality about getting their friend in front of Jesus, we can only conclude that these men had encountered Jesus before. That that somehow these men knew firsthand. They'd they'd seen firsthand or they'd heard firsthand that, that Jesus could heal people. And as we see them lift their friend up onto the roof and dig a hole in the roof, which was obviously some kind of thatched roof or earthen roof, and lower him on his mat down through the floor we start to understand that they knew that their friend desperately needed Jesus. You know, that they understood that there was one power in the universe that that had the answer they needed, and they would stop at nothing to make sure that their friend got that chance to meet Jesus. So how about you? You know, what are you willing to do for your friends and neighbors that desperately need to know Jesus? I mean, would you carry them on a mat across town, up onto a roof and lower them down? I mean, chances are in this day and age that wouldn't work. Uh, But what would you do? Would you invite them to church? Would you engage them in a conversation that goes far beyond just how are you doing today? Would you pray with them, even out loud? I mean, what would you do? You know, it's sometimes hard for us to imagine that, that right here in one of the most churched areas of America, there are a lot of people who have nowhere to turn. But the truth is this. Noblesville has 52,000 people in it as of the last census in 2010. Noblesville has 52,000 people. And our best estimate from talking with other churches and looking at research that is that 12,000 Noblesville residents have a church home that they attend regularly. That means that about 40,000 people just here in Noblesville uh, aren't regular church attenders. You know, they don't have a, a place that they can go on a regular basis to encounter Jesus. And, and we're in one of the most churched areas of the country And if you call Genesis Church your home and and you're here today because you know Jesus, this should really disturb you. You know, it should disturb you that close to four out of five residents in Noblesville don't have a church home. But but maybe you don't live in Noblesville, so let's go a little bit broader. So if we go out to Hamilton County, as of the 2010 census, there are 275,000 people in Hamilton County. It's now the second largest county in Indiana, which is pretty amazing. Out of those 275,000 people, 70 to 80% of them don't have a church home. So there's about 200,000 people right here in Hamilton County that somehow need to get in front of Jesus. Does that disturb you? Well, let's go a little further. Earlier this year, Forbes magazine in the March issue named Indianapolis one of the 20 fastest growing cities in the United States. 
The article is published in March, said in part, thanks to a business-friendly attitude, inexpensive housing, and a strong cultural community, Indianapolis's population now at 1.7 million has increased at a rate that's 50% higher than the national average. That's faster than hotspots Washington, D.C. and Seattle, and nearly as fast as urban planner darlings Portland or Denver. Now, if we can take the same averages that we've applied to Hamilton County, which I think is fair, and apply them to Indianapolis, that means that 1.2 to 1.3 million people in Indianapolis have no church home. And, and not all of them are non-believers, I understand, and not all of them have personal problems or family problems, but they don't have that sense of community that we have at Genesis Church and at other great churches in the area. You know, they don't have a place that they can get together and worship in a corporate environment. They don't have a place that they can go and be themselves and ask honest questions about God. They don't have a place that they can go and encounter Jesus on a regular basis, and that should disturb us. You know, our hearts should break for the single mom that needs a support system or for the alcoholic that needs to encounter Jesus, for the person or family who isn't sure where their next meal is coming from, you know, for the, the husband who gets out every night after his wife goes to bed and looks at pornography on his computer. Our hearts should break for that. I mean, does that disturb you? Well, throughout this series, we've been asking two questions. We've been asking, well, what does this news mean for me? What does it mean for you? And then what does it mean, you know, for Genesis Church? And let's think about that second question first. You know, what's our part to play in that? If, if there are 200,000 unchurched people in Hamilton County, then what part should Genesis play, Church play in that? I mean, how can we address that? You know, that's a question that we as a, as a staff and as leaders of this church have been asking for a while because clearly we can't fit 200,000 people in this building. I mean, we can fit a few more at 9 o'clock and at 12 o'clock, but not 200,000. And so if we're going to make room for people, we need to think of innovative ways to do that. But what if in the next couple of years we could get just 1% of Hamilton County's population to Genesis Church? That's 2,750 people. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, no, I don't want my church to get that big. But, you know, if, if we fail to make room for people, in the words of Rick Warren, then we're telling our neighbors that they can go to hell. And I don't think we want that. I don't think we can handle that. Well, one of the models we've looked at for how to handle this kind of growth is the first church in the book of Acts. You know, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2 that on the day of Pentecost that all the believers were together in one place. And, and on that day, at that time, there were about 120 believers total. So uh, in the first century, just to give you some perspective, there were 50 to 65 million people in the Roman Empire, the entire Roman Empire. And Christians represented a whole 120 of those people. So 0.00002%. Not very many. Now, uh, the, the spirit was in that place and the church grew. And the Bible tells us that on that day, on one day, that the church added 3,000 people, 3,000 believers that day. Now, that's some pretty astronomical growth, right? That's exponential growth from 120 to 3,120. I can imagine if some of you came back here next week and there were an extra 3,000 people in this room, you probably notice, right? I mean, that's some pretty good growth. But still, Christians represented a really small proportion of the Roman Empire. And the real growth didn't happen until Acts chapter 8. If you read the story of the first church in the book of Acts, you'll see in Acts chapter 8, the church was being persecuted and they had to scatter. So now, instead of meeting together in one place, we see the church scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. And, and, and you think this could be the end of the church. I mean, they were all together. They had this awesome sense of community. And when they separated to the ends of the earth, they could just give up. But they didn't. See, the people in the first church knew that what they had was too important to keep it a secret. And, and the Bible tells us in Acts 8, 4, but the believers who were scattered 
preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. For, for the believers in the first church, church wasn't a Sunday thing. It was an everyday thing. And so wherever they went, they preached the good news of Jesus. And the cool thing about this story is that the church from there just exploded. I mean, in just a couple of hundred years, the church grew from 120 people in Acts chapter 2 to become the official religion of the Roman Empire with as much as half of the Roman Empire claiming Jesus Christ as their Savior. 30 million people uh, from 120, all because the church was scattered and believers were forced to take the good news of Jesus Christ into their own cities and towns and neighborhoods. Now, in the same way, we here at Genesis Church are looking for ways to multiply what we have here in Noblesville to other parts of the county. And if you're curious about that, you won't want to miss next week as we roll out our next step in that direction. That is foreshadowing. That's my favorite uh, literary device. And so if you don't know what that means, that means come back next week and we're going to roll out our next step in that direction. So what's our part in reaching our neighbors for Jesus? And what about you and me? We have a role to play in this too, right? What does this truth mean for me? Well, I love how the prophet Isaiah writes it uh, in Isaiah 42. And I'm going to read this uh, from a version of the Bible called The Message. Uh, Isaiah 42, start with verse 5. It says, God's message, the God who created the cosmos, stretched out the skies, laid out the earth and all that grows from it, from it who breathes life into earth, earth's people, makes them alive with his own life. I am God. I have called you to live right and well. I have taken responsibility for you, kept you safe. I have set you among my people to bind them to me and provided you as a lighthouse to the nations to make a start at bringing people into the open, into light, opening blind eyes, releasing prisoners from dungeons, emptying dark prisons. Right there, did you see it? God is talking about bringing people into the light, opening blind eyes, releasing prisoners. And how? Through his secret plan. Read it again. I have set you among my people to bind them to me and provided you as a lighthouse to the nations to make a start at bringing people into the open, into the light. You see, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about that the church's job is not just to make a difference, but to make the world different. And God's plan to make the world different is right there. It's in that passage. It's you. I mean, well, I mean, God's plan to, to save the world is Jesus. Yes, obviously. Yes and amen to that. But somebody's got to tell people about him, right? And that, that somebody is you. It's me. That's, that's, that's God's plan to save the world. And as Josh Tandy said last week, there is no plan B. Right, we're plan A and there's no plan B. And you have been called to bind his people to him. You have been called to start bringing people into his light, to release people from prisons. You are called to spread the, the, the message. How, you wonder, can you save the world? Well, you can't and I can't. But God can and will through you. And telling your friends giving of your time and your money, serving in his kingdom, you and I can help bring heaven to earth. I mean, we can, we can take a little bit of what's up there and bring it down here. And, and, and there are people you interact with every day that you might be the only person they know that truly follows Jesus. And that's a huge responsibility. But think about what that means for a minute. I mean, if you look around your neighborhood, your workplace, and think that 70 to 80% of the people you see don't have a church home, those people are all around you and they're all around me. And the sad part for me is that they're dying every day. I mean, in Hamilton County, not to be morbid, but about 300 people die in Hamilton County every month. It's about 10 people a day. And many of those people are lost forever. And so as Jesus said, uh, the, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. But, but what if we could change that? I mean, what, what if each and every one of us, instead of professing a love for people, you know, started thinking about our love for a person. 
or two people? I mean, what if instead of taking this huge responsibility of me and you going to go make disciples, what if we thought about making a disciple? You know, instead of helping people find their way back to God, what if you and I got solely focused on helping a person find their way back to God? And maybe God's already putting a face in your mind right now. I mean, if every person in this room were to make just one disciple, what kind of difference would that make in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces? And then what if as a movement, we, the churches all across this area got together and we could change the percentage of unchurched people from from 70 to 80 to 50%. I mean, what kind of difference would that make in our neighborhoods? How would that make the world different? But here's the problem with me, and maybe this is the problem with you. (laughs) We make it so complicated. I mean, we can make telling our friends about Jesus so complicated. And let me tell you, when, when God makes you a pastor, it doesn't get any easier. I'm here to tell you that, that, that God has gifted me with some gifts and given me some things, but I'm not good at sharing my faith with people. And, and I know people who can walk into a room and people fall down at the feet of Jesus right there. Okay, tell me what I need to do, you know, but that's not me. But the hard part is being a pastor is the expectations raised. You know, so, so like I, I go to a dinner party now and it's like, oh, what do you do? Oh, you know, I, I'm in sales or I'm an accountant. Well, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. So you want to do this now or you want to, you know, it's like it's expected. We think we need to say just the right things and have all the right answers. And we worry that we don't understand predestination or, or millennialism. Or uh, we, we read Revelation and we see these creatures with the wings and the eyes all over them. And we don't know how to explain that. And so we think, how am I ever going to tell anybody about Jesus? We just get so complicated. It's like, well, it's like this. Comedian Brian Regan. Nice thin layer in there. You ever look at a Pop-Tarts box? They have directions on there. Can, can there be a simpler food item than Pop-Tarts? Like if the directions weren't on there, would somebody, what the? How do I get that goodness in me? What do you do? How do you get it done? You read, man. That's what you do. They have two sets of directions, in case you don't understand one set. You abandon that whole track and get on something a little easier for yourself. They have a set of toaster directions, which, believe it or not, is more than one step. How could there possibly be more than one step? I can only think of one. Step one, toast the Pop-Tarts. Go ahead, toast them. Hey, are you still reading this? <laughs> but they've managed to break them into smaller increments. These are some of the actual steps. I would love to be in the room watching somebody who has to consult these toaster steps. Okay, number one, remove pastry from pouch. I see where they're going with this. We're banging on all cylinders now. Number two, insert pastry vertically. Oh, oh no. They're reading toaster direction. You're going to throw the vertical concept at them? 
whole set of microwave directions. That just blew me away that you could actually microwave a Pop-Tart. How long does it take to toast a Pop-Tart? A minute? You want them dark? People don't have that kind of time? Listen, if you need to zap fry your Pop-Tarts before you head out the door, you might want to loosen up your schedule. But, but just like Pop-Tarts, <laughs> can't believe I'm making this transition. Just like Pop-Tarts, we can make reaching our neighbors so complicated. But the truth is much more simple. I and mean, the truth for you and for me is that how we live says much more about Jesus than anything we could say. You know, keep your finger in your Bible at Mark chapter 2, but, but we're coming back to there. But if you, if you have it, uh, flip over to 1 Peter chapter 9. Uh, 1 Peter, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 9. We'll see what God says through the Apostle Peter. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Whoa, wait a minute. I'm a priest, a royal priesthood? I mean, I'm a priest. I mean, those guys, they're holy, right? I mean, there's like on the spiritual food chain, priests are way up there, right? Yeah, that's right. And you are one. God says so. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires, which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live good lives among the pagans. Pastor Andy Stanley says it this way. People won't follow us necessarily because they believe what we believe, but they may follow us when they see that we believe what we say we believe. You know, God says that we should live in such a way that even the pagans, even non-believers would look at our lives and see something different. I mean, even our coworkers might say, I I don't believe what she believes, but I sure would like to work with more people like that because she has honesty and integrity and and she doesn't complain all the time. You know, live such a good life that your neighbor might say, "I I may never believe what you do, but I sure hope my daughter marries somebody like you because I see the way you treat your wife. I see the way you lead your family, and that's what I want my family to become. That's what I want my daughter to marry into. You know, live such a good life that a fellow student might say, I don't know if I believe in this Jesus, but your life looks so different. I'd sure like to get to know more about him. You know, live such a good life that your neighbor might say, I don't believe what you believe, but I sure wish more people like you lived around here because I love the way you serve others. And let me say this about serving. Paul alluded to this early on. We don't just talk about serving because we think it's a good idea. And we talk about serving because that's what Jesus did. I mean, the Bible tells us that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's why we we talk about Gen Kids. And that's why we say, you know, that's not babysitting. That when you drop your child off, there's somebody there helping, helping your child find their way back to God. That's why when you drove in the parking lot this morning and you saw some friendly smiling face in an orange vest goofing off out there in the parking lot uh, that got here early and, and that may stay late and that, that came in, uh, you know, in the summertime when it was 100 degrees outside and still put on that orange vest and will come in in the wintertime when it's 10 below zero. You guys are coming back, right? Okay. They'll come back in the wintertime when it's 10 below zero and they're still going to direct you to your parking space. It's not so your car doesn't get damaged in the parking lot. I mean, that's an important part of it. But that's the first face you see when you come to Genesis Church. They are not just parking your car. They're making disciples. They're helping people find their way back to God. That's why we love people who come at 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock. We love people who come at 1030 too. But we love it when people come at 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock 
even when that's not the most convenient time for their family here at Genesis because they understand that 1030 is our most convenient service time for visitors. That's the most the time that most visitors will visit a church is at 1030. And so by coming at 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock, they're making room for more people. They're, they're helping people find their way back to God. You know, um, that's why we, we give away these little red food bags where you can give to our food pantry out there. Once a month, we take food up to Bethel Lutheran, and you can grab one of these today, and you can not just help feed hungry people, but you can help people find their way back to God. It's hard for us to tell people that Jesus can change their lives if our lives don't look any different than those of non-believers around us. And the sad fact is that far too many of our lives look the same as those of non-believers. You know, studies show that within the church, we divorce at the same rate as people outside the church. The studies show that we watch the same TV shows and movies, that we hit our kids as often, that we're no more generous, that we get drunk as much, we watch as much pornography, and we have affairs at the same rate as people outside the church. You see, we think we need to say just the right things to express the gospel to people, but in fact, I think the most powerful expression of the gospel is to live the way Jesus says to live. The most powerful expression of the gospel is to live the way Jesus says to live. And I'm telling you that living the way Jesus says to live is not just good for reaching your friends. It's better for you. You know, I didn't grow up in the church. My parents divorced when I was very young, and and we spent most of my time, my sisters and I, with my dad. And uh, we we got to go see my mom on weekends, and, and neither one, my mom or my dad, had a church home. Uh, But I was very fortunate that for a few years, a few very pivotal years from the time I was about 11 or 12 until I was 14 or 15, that that my mom found a church home that she was a part of. And and I found Jesus there, and and it was great. It it was uh, important, a very formidable part of my life, uh, formative part of my life. Um, But then at 15, my mom left the church, and and I never went back. And so um, I was uh, a non-believer when I had the typical, I think, non-Christian high school and college experience. And uh, when I met my wife and, and we married, I was 22, and, uh, and neither one of us were believers. But God got a hold of my heart at 29 years old and, and changed my life forever. And I just want to say this, too. God got a hold of my heart through a church that I was at because my wife was praying for me to come to church. And my wife was praying for me to come to church because uh, our neighbor had reached out to her and, and invited her to a Bible study, and she found Christ at that Bible study. And, and it looked something like this. So my neighbor said, uh, hey, Benita, would you like to come to a Bible study? We're going to study the book of John. And she said, sure, who's going to be there? And he said, well, right now it's you. Uh, and, but that didn't dissuade him from asking. It didn't dissuade her. And so she accepted the invitation, and she found Christ there, and she started praying for me. And I went to a church with her, and I found Christ. And here I stand today. I'm on staff at a church. So let me say this. Don't stop praying for your spouse. Don't stop praying for your neighbor. Don't you dare stop asking them. Because God can do a work in their life. Jesus got a hold of my heart at 29 years old, but that was only 12 years ago. I'll let you do the math. That was just 12 years ago, so I know what it's like not to follow Jesus. I've spent most of my life living it the way I choose, but I'm telling you that his way is better. It is. It's just better. The mission of God has a great need for missional followers, more than people who've memorized scripture, more than people who pray fervently. Those things are important. But God needs people who will do what he commands. And that's how we reach people, to live like Jesus says to live. Now, don't, you know, don't, don't be uh, deceived. Someday, words are going to be required. But what I found is that when we live the way Jesus says to live, that, that people give us a lot more grace when they ask us about it if we don't have the right words. Our lives say more than our words do. Let's go back to our paralyzed friend in Mark 2. Hopefully, you still have your, your finger there. Mark 2, 5 says, Seeing their faith... 
Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. That's an odd thing to say. Your sins are forgiven. You know, that's not why they brought their friend. They brought him because he was crippled. You know, they went to all the trouble because he couldn't walk. Uh, This man needed healing. And the first thing Jesus did was forgive his sins. That's kind of weird. Verse six. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or stand up, pick up your mat and walk? So I will prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. You see, Jesus knew and understood that though we, you and I, can usually only see the physical problems, the financial problems, the problems that manifest themselves visibly, the root of many of these problems are unforgiven sin. You know, what what Jesus says here, in effect, is that you can see he's crippled physically, but I can see he's crippled spiritually, and that's even more important. And that's why our friends and family and neighbors need to know Jesus, because no matter how hard we work to fix their economic problems, uh, to fix their, their physical problems, to help them with those things, to work on their relationship problems, there's a spiritual problem at the heart of so many of these issues, and only Jesus has the power to forgive sins. You know, in fact, if I may be so bold, I suggest that some of us in this room have a hard time reaching others for Jesus because we have some unforgiven sin in our lives. You know, while, while most of this morning is about reaching others and being on mission for others, I just want to take a minute and examine ourselves. See, when we invite Jesus into our lives, he pays the price for all of our sin. Everything we've ever done and everything we ever will do, he takes it on and takes it with him to the cross and it dies with him on the cross. But many of us keep something back. You know, we have an area of our life where, where Jesus just isn't allowed. And maybe we're even in a small group or an accountability relationship, and maybe we've confessed 99% of our sin to somebody. But to be almost known is to be unknown. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, like if somebody knows almost everything you've ever done, they don't know you at all. And some of us aren't really sure if we're forgiven because we're not ever sure that we've confessed. You know, and, and Psalm 66 says it this way. For I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. So if we have unconfessed sin in our lives, it hinders our prayers. The the scripture says so. It hinders our lives. It sometimes manifests itself in physical problems or financial problems or even just insecurity. You know, we don't see the point of reaching others for Jesus because he hasn't changed our lives. He hasn't healed us, but really, we just haven't given him the chance. We just haven't let him in. You need to have a relationship, at least one relationship, where you can be totally and completely real about your problems and your struggles and where you can confess your sin and allow Jesus to fully heal you. Now, I'm not quite done with this morning, but I just, I felt, feel like we just need to take a minute and pray right there. Would you pray with me? Father God, um, We thank you that you do forgive sin and that anyone who's invited you into his heart is forgiven. But God, sometimes it's hard for us to to forgive ourselves and to think about uh, the stuff that we do and why uh, God, as your scripture says, that we keep on, we know what is right, but we don't do it. And the things that we don't want to do, we do. And um, so God, I just pray for the people in this room this morning, including myself, for 
for patterns of sin that we're stuck in, for things that we haven't given up fully to you, God, I pray that those will just be released to you even right now. And if you're here and you're in this room this morning and, and, and you know Jesus Christ, but, but there's something that you've just been holding back from God, that there's something that you want prayer for, I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to say your name. I'm not going to ask you any questions about it, but I, I just want to be able to pray with you, pray over you right now uh, for the forgiving of that sin. Would you, would you raise your hand? If you have something in your life that you've just been holding back from God, thank you very much for that hand. Thank you for that. Anybody else? If you have something that's in your life, God, I just thank you for these hands that were raised. I thank you for the people uh, in this room that right now are asking for forgiveness of their sin, God. And I know um, that you've done that already. And I just pray that you give them great confidence that you answer prayer and that you do forgive sin, that you have the power to forgive sin. And if you're here this morning and, and you don't know Jesus, uh, maybe today's your day. Maybe you need to have that relationship. If you're here this morning and you've never made a confession of faith that Jesus Christ is your Savior and you want to do that this morning, would you raise your hand for me? I would love to pray with you. I would love to, to be able to, um, to go before the throne with you and, and invite God into your heart. God, you can say this prayer with me. God, um, I can't do this alone. I, I'm tired of trying to fight these battles on my own and I need someone uh, to come into my life and walk alongside of me. I need your Holy Spirit in me. So God, I admit that, I, that I've sinned and I just ask for your forgiveness for that, God. And I want to walk with you. Come in and be the, the Lord of my life. Father, uh, just help us now in these next few minutes um, as we uh, just investigate your word and what it means to be on mission for you. In Jesus' name, amen. The most powerful expression of the gospel is to live the way Jesus says to live. You know, we are called, you and I are called to make the world different. And we can start right here in our own neighborhoods, our own dorms, our own families. I love Jesus said it this way. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And that's what we should want. That's what we should aspire to. And here's some encouragement for you this morning. (laughs) You know, right before Jesus gave the the Great Commission, the last words he said, before the last words he said, Right before Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, it says, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, at this point, it doesn't matter what he says next. You know, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth, authority to drive out demons, authority to heal people, authority to raise the dead, all authority. So whatever Jesus says next, we have great confidence that it's going to succeed. You know, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. So whatever he commands us to do, it's going to work. We're going to be a success. And if we want to be a church on mission, if we want to be people on mission, we need to live our lives where our lives shine so bright that they can't be hidden. You know, because on every street, in every neighborhood, in every apartment building, in every dorm, in every office, and in every factory, there is darkness. And there's darkness that can only be overcome by the light of Jesus shining through us. And and so we wanted to give you a chance this morning in our last few minutes of the service just to be a visible representation of that this morning. So uh, I have a map over here of Hamilton County. And I know not all of you live in Hamilton County, but it really is our area of influence. And the band's going to come out and and they're going to play a song for us while we do this. But we've got some little green stickers over here that represent these green lights, just like these go lights we've got up here. And, And if you felt called this morning, if you feel like God is telling you, hey, there's a place you need to go and make a disciple. There's a place you need to go help, help people find their way back to God or help a person find their way back to God. It might be in your neighborhood. It might be in your workplace. Uh, it could be in your dorm. 
uh, I, we're just going to invite you as soon as the band starts this song to come on up and put a sticker on that map. It doesn't have to be exactly the right place. We're not going to follow up with you. We're not going to hold you to it. But we do want to have a visible representation of what Genesis Church could look like if we were to go make disciples all over Hamilton County. And if you're not from Hamilton County, there are places outside this map where we've drawn. You can, you can go to Zionsville. You can go to Tipton or Kokomo or Anderson or, or Elwood or Indianapolis, wherever you want to put it. We just love to do this. So the band's going to start this song. And as they play, you're welcome to come up here to the front and and put a a sticker or two, uh, be the light of the world, be a lighthouse to the nations.